Hello and welcome to episode one of LA Meekly, the podcast. I'm sorry. Are you Daniel Zafrin? Yeah. Oh, perfect. Oh, perfect. Will you sign this for me? Sign this right next to Mike. I love. I love your whatever it's called podcast. It's the first episode. I haven't famous yet. This is LA. It doesn't matter. Just sign it. Sign it right next to the microphone for me. Is this thing on? No. no hey. Go away. Oh, look at this thing. Can you get back up my microphone. Hello. Everybody. Oh. Wait. Do you want to be on a podcast? Do I? Well, then pull up a chair yeah. and let us begin episode one of L.A. Meekly, the podcast. All right. Thank you to Alberto Sistos for helping out with our theme for the moment. This is episode one of L.A. Meekly, the podcast, and just to explain what this is going to be, it's going to be just sort of a history lesson, an extensive history lesson about different aspects of L.A. that interest us mm -hmm. or are researchable. We have a long list of stuff that we find interesting and we'll just delve into everything. Yeah. Uh, everything. Pretty much just Google everything and then read it on the podcast. <laughs> None of, none of these are cited. <laughs> to explain who I am, I'm Daniel Zafrin. Hi, Daniel. Hello. <laughs> I am from Granada Hills in the valley. Mm -hmm. What valley? Uh, the valley. <laughs> you know the valley. You know the one. You, we all know the one. San Fernando Valley, which is very specific. Yeah. Yeah. That's not yeah, no, we don't need to talk about the other yeah. guys. <laughs> right ahead of me is... I'm Greg Gonzalez. I was born in the real L.A., <laughs> Uh, East LA, and then I moved to Echo Park, and I've been slumming it there ever since. Nobody cares. So for the first episode, what better way to start off than to examine where knowledge is born? The Los Angeles Public Library System. It was very uh, strange looking up the library from the library, because they don't have a lot of stuff on themselves, which I thought was really weird. They're so modest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we. I for the a lot of research, I had to go to the... Um, Central Library itself, and I just had like a manila folder of everything they've saved throughout the years. Yeah, it was uh, couldn't take it home. No, I, well, to, I they they wouldn't let me leave the desk, and they were watching <laughs> the whole time when I was going through it. All. They took my ID and they laughed at my picture <laughs> as I walked away. <laughs> I was just standing there calling back to my girlfriend. Can you believe that there are over three hundred books in eighteen hundred forty? I found a lot of pamphlets that I thought were really funny from like the 60s of like the bookmobile and just like little things. We now have like computers where you can look up like, it was like the first catalog on a computer that they were so like, this is the future, we've made it. <laughs> I thought that the person, whoever like had a high hand type each catalog card and then put them through the rack and then someone came up with a computer system must have been pissed. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about our relationship with the Please. library, the public library system and libraries in general. Right. Uh, I can't seem to get away from working in the public library or in a library. I spent three years at the Mid-Valley Library, mm -hmm. and then I left, and then I ended up at the Cal State Northridge Library, and then I left, yes. and then I ended up back at the Los Angeles Public Library. How do you feel about libraries in general? Next topic. I remember the first library I went to was the Anthony Quinn Library in uh, East LA, which is still up. They just wrote an LA Times article about it not too long ago, how it has a lot of film memorabilia there. And uh, I saw Gregory Peck read The Raven at the Mark Taper Auditorium at the Library. For high school, our, we had a really small school, which is in uh, the outskirts of downtown, and there wasn't enough room, so they would ship us to Central Library 
um, at 8 in the morning, which is before the, the bums come in. So we were there before the homeless would be in there. And, uh, and then they, was, they would, we would, uh, some classes we, you know, we'd do work, but others they would just unleash us in the library. So I, I had a pretty good relationship. And now I'm in library school because I want to be an archivist if everything else doesn't work out. Well, judging by the way things are going, <laughs> they are not I will be an archivist. <laughs> So look for him in your local archive in <laughs> five years. Crying. <laughs> like archiving his tears. Balding, bearded man goes. <laughs> okay, so episode one, and let's, let's begin with the history. I'm going to give you a year, which the library started, and you just run off from there. How about that? I actually, your year, what you say Come is on. the beginning of the library system, I challenge. Oh, give me a year. 1872. Idiot. <laughs> Please tell me more. Well, it started unofficially in 1844. Wow. It was not yet sort of a library, so to speak. Mm -hmm. That's when there were less than 1,500 people living in Los Angeles. And it basically was just a bunch of donated books and old magazines. <laughs> and throughout the years, it kept changing and growing. And along with the city. Along with the city. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Trains started rolling by. What did I read? Alley was big for before. It was a metropolitan city. It was like a... Um, Oranges. Oil. Oil. <laughs> Oil. Oil and oranges. Throughout the years, the library kept changing, and as the collection grew, mm -hmm. they just kept growing too big for their britches. <laughs> now, what do you do with all those books, really? Nobody knew how to read. And what do you do with all those ripped britches? <laughs> the overall themes, it seems, of the library mm -hmm. I wrote down here is budget cuts, and there isn't enough room. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I have a mountain of research that could support both those things. <laughs> oh. And sassy women. Yes, sassy. Oh, my God. Got so many women. sassy women. As you said, the library officially started in 1872 mm -hmm. in a ceremony held in the Merced Theater. Merced is not, no longer there. It was demolished one year after that, that meeting took place. Really? And they don't even have... Even people in 1897 had already forgotten what it looked like. Huh. I wish they told me that before I started to research it. <laughs> before you started interviewing people <laughs> from 1897. You tell me about the Merced! I even went to Merced, California. They didn't know anything either. <laughs> Get out of here. So uh, Governor, Governor, Downey. Governor Downey was there presiding over it all. Mm -hmm. And the official date that the doors were open to the public was January 1st, 1873, with a grand total of 800 books on the shelves that were mostly loaned by citizens. Really? Membership cost $5 a month, or you could buy a lifetime membership for $50, one-time fee. It was originally called the Los Angeles Library Association, which yes. was changed to the Los Angeles Public Library in 1878. And it was located on the Downey Block, which was basically sort of a collection of department stores or just mm -hmm. various stores and saloons that was located on Spring and Temple. Temple. Yeah. I found a picture of it, too. Yeah. Yeah. We hopefully we'll have some sort of a website where you can look. At if it. not, just try to picture it. Downy blocks, <laughs> Manhattan Temple. You get all old timey. Everything was. It's, it's, it's insane. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was going to blow your mind with knowing who John uh, Downey was because he was the seventh governor of LA from 1860 to 1862. But you knew that already because I didn't know there. that much about him. That's all I. I thought his first name was Governor. <laughs> Which was a name, a proper name at the time, which yeah. is how many, so, somehow, yeah, so many people got elected as one person. So. 
a governor on every block. His name's governor, just let him sit there. <laughs> in this time period, this sort of a location above of saloons and mm-hmm. department stores was typical for libraries. Right. And that actually influenced the way libraries are now arranged, sort of because department stores have, you know, the, the health department, the right. clothing department, and now libraries have the science fiction department, mm-hmm. the literature oh. department, the nonfiction department. Basically different departments for different genres and shuts subjects. Subjects. The first city librarian was John C. Littlefield. And when its doors were first opened, women were excluded from using it. That would would change very soon. (laughs) Within six months, they, well, in six months, they were allowed to use their male relatives' cards. In 1876, a ladies' room that had no books in it, but it had magazines and sofas. About a little bit about Littlefield, he started, uh, like you said, in 1872. He got paid $75 per month, which soon became $100, and he came, he was uh, in publishing, he was the editor of the LA uh, Weekly Express. He uh, set up a lot of library facilities through fundraising and donations. He doubled the holdings really quickly. Uh, He put together the first catalog. I didn't look up what JC meant, though. Jesus it's Christ. <laughs> Jesus Christ, Littlefield. <laughs> by the middle, uh, I can't think of a better term, by the middle of his reign, <laughs> in 1875, there were 350 members of the library. Right. The cost of membership he changed to $2.50 and then 50 cents per month in dues. Okay. So two fifty to join and then 50 cents every month for dues. Or $5 a year if you paid it in advance. The way it worked then was you could only check out one big book at a time or two small books at a time. The books could be out two weeks and renewed once. And new books could only be out one week, which shocked me because nothing has changed in over 100 years. And the fines at that time were five cents a day for the big books, three cents for the small books. He also set up a smoking room. Mm. He was replaced in 1879, which I heard was because he smoked gymsum weed because he had really bad asthma and it smelled horrible. So they fired him, naturally. (laughs) Naturally. And he was replaced by Patrick Connolly, who Mm -hmm. was constantly drunk. He, ooh, okay. Yeah. I, I, um, I read in a, some old material that went over the library and said it was very polite because it was written by the library. When it referred to Pat Connolly's alcoholism, it said, a weakness, a periodic weakness <laughs> that kept him absent from a lot of library events. And they had to let him go. No mention of his alcohol, but they mentioned several times that he was Irish. I think they implied it. <laughs> that was code back then. <laughs> so he lasted only a year yeah. before being replaced. Well, what? Before you get to the big one, yep. I also read something funny enough. He was at the same time the president of the Catholic Abstinence Society here in L.A. That is... He, is, he was a man of contradictions. Mm-hmm. He's Irish. Is, he, isn't he Irish? <laughs> Did you call him Irish? I think you called him Irish. <laughs> so he lasted only a year before mm-hmm. the big, the first big person in the library came in. Mary, Monumental, not big. Yeah, she was, she was small. This was Mary Emily Foy in 1880. She was the first woman to work for the library at age 18. She was the library's first true innovator. Her hiring was the beginning of an era in library history from 1880 to 1905 when city librarians who were women really took control and boosted the reputation of the whole library system. I know you have some stuff to say about this, but the job attracted women because at the time they weren't allowed to have Mm -hmm. most government jobs. So they went to the one place in the government (laughs) where they were allowed to try to make a difference, which was the library. Yeah, and it also drew a lot of progressive women there. Mm-hmm. Women who already could read and they already had uh, positions of power, or not power, but you know they had they were working already. Yeah. So when they came there, they already had a lot of experience. So when they they got in the library system, they just moved it full force forward because 
A lot of women were working the library. Men had a, a administrative jobs, but a lot of women were working the library itself. Yeah. Before she came along, the library was like a parlor for men, like you mentioned. Like they had a, a, a smoking room. They also had a room for like checkers and chess. It was just kind of like a hangout spot with books. And when she came in, she got rid of the checks, the checkers and chess, which was very controversial at the time. And um, right. I actually read that she would referee chess games. Oh, is that maybe I'm thinking of Tessa Kelso already? You might be because she. She seems spoiler like, alert. She, spoiler she comes alert. up a little bit later. And you were saying that now. It's still, because of that early sort of mm-hmm. dominance they had in the library, it's still kind of women-heavy. It's very, women, f- women very uh, feminine. Um, the pioneers of the library were not girls who would be easily stepped over. Like, yeah. they, were, they were women who put up fights when you try to take them out of the library. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that must be where the whole stereotype of the, you know, the mousy woman yeah, exactly. who works in the library. Yeah. Yeah, it's well-established to say yeah. that type where it has deep roots, and, mm-hmm. it, and it starts with Mary Foy. Yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah. She was later nick- nicknamed Miss Los Angeles mm-hmm. because of her credentials, which I will list to you right now. Please do. Vice President of the Political Equality League, mm-hmm. Secretary of the Votes for the Women Club, President of the California Women's Democratic League, mm-hmm. a delegate to the Democratic National Convention in 1916 and 1920, she helped organize the California Parlor of the Native Daughters of the American West. She wrote for several L.A. newspapers Jesus. and ran for Congress in 1934, but lost. Massive career. Yeah. Yeah. She was very... She was not lazy. Yeah, yeah. and a really long career from 1880 to 1934. And even when she was ousted from the library, she continued to do things like that. She never went back to the library, but she continued to work very yeah. uh, in public eye for very important causes like that. So for the library, mm-hmm. Mary Foy is the one who brought the actual Dewey Decimal System into the library. I read that, but I also read it was uh, Kelso as well, so I don't know which one is true or not, because mm-hmm. I read both have done the same thing. Hmm. With, with Mary Ford, she would have to be incredibly, incredibly progressive, because it was very new at the time. It was about four years old. So if Foy did it, she must have had incredible foresight and... Foresight? Foresight, if you will. I don't get it. Get out. But, I mean, it's, both are possible. I mean, it had been out, but it was incredibly new at the time. Yeah, I mean, it, I wouldn't put it past her <laughs> to, to try something out so new. So I also have that she would referee chess games mm-hmm. held in the library, and she would settle bets in one of the saloons downstairs. Mm-hmm. She was only 18. I don't know what she was doing in that saloon. <laughs> in 1872, the population of LA was about 6,000. When Mary Foy jumps in, it's 11,000. So she's at a time in LA when it's growing. It's growing very fast. It's this, that's only, what, eight years and it grows that much? <laughs> mm-hmm. Like you mentioned, she was very young when she took the position. She died in 1962. So she watched it become a sleepy uh, Pueblo town. And she watched it become the third largest city in America. She See? was there for all of that. That's why she was Miss Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. They crowned her, right? Yeah. They give her a crown. But they don't give crowns to Miss. <laughs> they give her a TR. <laughs> After Mary Foy, mm-hmm. there was a period of relative quiet for the library as mm-hmm. someone named Jesse Gavitt mm-hmm. took over as city librarian from 1884 to 1889. She didn't work a library before that. At the time, it was very common to give positions like that to people who needed it. And she was one of those people who needed it. So they, they took Mary Foy out, which she was very upset about. But they gave it to Gavitt, whose father had died recently. He, he, uh, you know, he was a widower and he had kids. She was one of those kids. So she, need, she just needed the money. So they just <laughs> gave it to her. They Boy. think that it might have been a, pol- a political pay at some point. But I don't, didn't read if she had any like, power of her own. But she didn't do like a horrible job. It was just kind yeah. of a lull. It, yeah, she kept it going yeah. for, for the next <laughs> the person who can actually 
make a difference. And she did make a huge difference. Well, there's actually someone in between. After Jesse Gavitt mm-hmm. is someone named Lydia Prescott, who only really? was there for one year in 1889. Okay. And then... Was well, she a drunk too? She must have been. <laughs> and after that quiet time was over, when the next massive figure, again, massive... Massive. Not uh, in size. Landmark, career-wise massive. Yeah. Tessa Kelso mm-hmm. took the helm for her reign mm-hmm. from... Another reign. A lot of reigns in this one. Yeah. From 1889 to 1895, mm-hmm. this was another uh, another really cool woman who, in the 1890s, mind you, mm-hmm. she was smoking cigarettes in public and she had short hair. Mm-hmm. And one time she fought off a clergyman's attempt to get a racy French novel removed from I her have shelves. A little bit more on that, which is very interesting. Yeah. Sorry, but we'll get on that. No, tell little... me, tell me. So she has her uh, career, which we'll talk about right now. Mm-hmm. But she didn't fight it off necessarily like physically fight. It was Reverend, I believe, Campbell of the First Methodist Church. He condemned um, Kelso's character for for approving the acquisition of its. I don't know how to say it. you. You went to France. You could read it. <laughs> Jean Richard Le Cadet. <laughs> he did not. Um, it was very uh, controversial book at the time, apparently, and he was condemning her for accepting that into the library system. So he was just going uh, in front of uh, his audience and denouncing her, and she sued him and won for slander, basically. Hmm. So she, a reverend went up, and then she won the with that. <laughs> she also, at the same time, was in another lawsuit with somebody. It was a city auditor, and he didn't think that she should be reimbursed her money for going to the American Library Association meeting in Chicago. It was like $200, and he thought that she, should, she shouldn't get that back, and she shouldn't have done that. She won that too because basically the public said, yeah, you don't get to say what uh, she does with our money. So she won two suits at the same time. Wow. But that's on her way out, actually. That, those were two things oh, that actually... Starts, yeah, that was, those are two things that led to her character coming into question. Yeah, which but is... We'll get into that. Let's talk about all the good stuff she did first. Yeah, let's not talk about her horrible character. No. <laughs> she significantly boosted the scope and size of the LAPL. Mm-hmm. That stands for Los Angeles Public Library. One more time. LAPL. <laughs> Before we get into library stuff, let's just mention that she came from the publishing world, too. She was a very successful newspaper woman and publicist. So she did several things. First off, in her first year, 1889, Mm -hmm. the collection had grown to 6,000 volumes, Mm -hmm. and there was no longer enough space in uh, the Downey block where they were, so the library moved out of their headquarters and relocated to the third floor of City Hall. But the old City Hall, which is now the Los Angeles Times building. Yeah, which is incredibly... um, It's got a lot more size than City Hall. It's a skinny. Other times it's fat. Yeah. 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 It's right there in Spring and Temple, and it takes up the entire block. Mm -hmm. It goes from um, First Street to Temple. Yeah, there's even a little plaque there if you want to read Go down there. Can we go now? Read a little plot. Can we go now? Let's bring this down to the plot. <laughs> Let's take this thing on the road. She started the first library training classes, mm-hmm. and she also started the book delivery system to get books sent out to people who didn't necessarily live near the library, yeah. the central library. The, the, the two locations that. I have, first one was Boyle Heights. Boyle Heights is actually kind of close mm-hmm. to yeah. downtown. It's like right over the, the river. We'll get more into that. And then... Uh, a year later, she established one on University Avenue, which is East LA, which is a little further. And then Angelino Heights is just right around the corner. It's up Temple. But also, bear in mind, help me. This was eighteen ninety something. That would have taken a year to walk from from Beaudry. You could have gotten four different plays <laughs> on the way from Downey or from Royal Heights to the library. 
One of the biggest things she did was she abolished the membership fees mm-hmm. in 1891, and she made it free for the first time in LAPL history, which right. has never changed. During her time there, she increased the number of books the library had. Mind you, it started at 6,000 when she came in. Mm-hmm. She increased it to 42,000. And when she started the job, there mm-hmm. were 132 library cards issued in the whole city. And when she left, there were 20,000. She yeah, had uh, an assistant, uh, a library assistant named Adelaide Hess, is it? H-A-S-S-E. And the two of them were actually very tight. When the, the board starts fighting her over the two lawsuits, basically, and there's other stuff going on, too. But I think they're just trying to get her out of there because I think they wanted to get a, a male in there, which they don't do until, what, like two libraries yeah, later? It's, or another, it's, yeah, it's, it's a while away. But her and her library assistant resign at the same time over all this stuff that's happening. She, it's a lot of heat on her because of the two lawsuits. The conditions in the library are actually starting to get a lot worse because they're so cramped. They've, they've just moved from Downey Block to City Hall and everything's just cramped. There's, the working conditions are really hard. A lot of employees are unhappy and they're unhappy at her. So she resigns. The board asks her not to resign to take back her resignation along with her assistant, which she does. They cancel their resignation and then they scratch that that ever happened from the, the records. But then the next meeting, they had to account for those missing minutes. And there was a gentleman by the name of Frank Flint who just introduced the idea of dropping their salary and then everyone just approved. <laughs> so they re resigned. There's budget cuts. Budget cuts. There's a budget cut budget for you. Cuts. And then after that, um, they, they, they move on with the careers. Uh, Kelso never goes back to the library, I believe, but she continues. Not that I'm aware of. Yeah. And then I think um, the library assistant, though, has uh, stays in a little bit longer. She becomes... Uh, a uh, librarian, but not for the LAPL, for like, a, I believe, either a university or one of the counties. Yeah. What, see, the library just chews people up. <laughs> just spits them out once they're done with it. No matter how good and progressive yeah, you I are. Know. After her, mm-hmm. two other women took charge of the library in the forms of Clara Fowler from 1895 to 1897. Mm-hmm. Do you have anything about her? Not Nothing on Fowler. I don't have anything about her either. And then the person after that was Harriet Child. Wadley, Wadley, eighteen ninety seven to nineteen hundred, and it doesn't seem like much happened with these two people. Yeah, the significant occurrence during Wadley's term mm-hmm. was the creation of the first library satellite being open, in the form of the reading room and delivery station at the Boyle Heights Library oh, Association, right. which started in eighteen eighty nine. It started in eighteen eighty nine as its own endeavor, as its own sort of thing, but yeah. it was annexed eventually into the library system, the LAPL library system yeah. in eighteen ninety nine. And then it wasn't until nineteen ten it was rebranded as the Boyle Heights Station, which right. was the first branch, branch. library system. Right. And also a little side note, please. All of the libraries, there's seventy two mm-hmm. branch libraries and then the central one in the LAPL system yeah. and they all have a number. So Boyle Heights is number one. So the numbers will tell you in what order really? they were all brought into the system. That's pretty neat. So I think Silver Lake is the most recent one. It is, yeah. And it's a beautiful library. They have everything all the DVDs our criteria. Yeah, that's how you know. <laughs> that's how you know you got quality. Before we continue, do you have a favorite branch library? Favorite branch? I'm just too close to them. <laughs> I just love them all so much. I, I don't like the Hollywood libraries because, just because it scares me, but there's so much cool yeah. Hollywood stuff. Like there's this even this special room that you can go into that I went into once that has like just filing cabinets full of like old Hollywood like uh you know like the the little paper you'd get at the premiere of oh. Citizen Kane. Oh, and really? They have like autographs of Woody Allen and I really like that one. Yeah. What's your favorite one? Oh my god, you're gonna ask me that. 
<laughs> you know, there's, um, I forgot which one it is. It's on Alvarado in MacArthur Park. I don't know what branch that is, but actually, I think it's MacArthur. Is it might Carter. be the MacArthur Park? Maybe. I don't know. But I, I really like that branch, whatever it is. It, it's just very old. Oh, and the Wilshire branch, too. Uh, I haven't been to that one. That one is in Koreatown. Um, it's very it's very nice looking. And it's a very um, old room, old alley room. I like the old ones. Yeah, me too. I like I like the old ones. Yeah. And seeing the Tarzana one with the sharp edge, I don't like that. <laughs> I don't like it for other reasons. <laughs> As the city of Los Angeles continued to grow... Mm-hmm the city started to take over the neighboring regions. So, cause the city itself was downtown. That was Los yeah, Angeles. And the name yeah. there was, that was pretty much its own city. And then there was Hollywood, which was its own city and mm-hmm. like Eagle Rock, which was its own city. Right. And eventually Los Angeles started to mold in mm-hmm. Hollywood and Eagle Rock, like the blob. Yeah. <laughs> Just like the blob. It was, that's where the movie came from. Mm-hmm. That's what it's <laughs> that's that, It had political implications, sociopolitical <laughs> implications. Eventually they started taking in all these other areas of Los Angeles yeah. and they would mold them back into the greater city that is now Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And as this happened, the libraries that had already been established in all of these areas, mm-hmm. they got absorbed into the LAPL system as right. well. A note on that, they didn't know that the city was going to grow the way it did, which is what you just mentioned, you know, the yeah. um, suburban sprawl, we're going to try mm-hmm. to separate and go to Glendale, we're going to become San Fernando Valley, but LA was just going to, LA County just absorbs everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it, it just kept spreading and... By, by 1900, I have the population as 100,000 here. In, in all of Los Angeles? Yeah, in LA, yeah. Wow. It's big. That's a big growth. That's a big, that's a big growth. <laughs> should, they should get that checked out. <laughs> Can we talk about Mary Jones now? Uh, I still have more. Oh, okay. Hit me with it. Well, that. it's coming, though. Actually, no. It's, Does she, it's here. Do we have similar notes? Is she coming? <laughs> I think she's she's scheduled to make an appearance. Because <laughs> uh, if we had somebody walk in, we're going to be Mary Jones. Be so happy. Hello! <laughs> At this point, this is when the reign of women ended. Okay. And it ended on a sour note. Mm-hmm. So the last sort of great woman librarian mm-hmm. was Mary Jones. Mm-hmm. And she was city librarian from 1900 to 1905. Despite being the first city librarian in L.A. to actually have attended library school, she was fired in 1905 to make way for a man to have her job. Mr. Of Lewis. course. <laughs> During this time, the library funding was given four mills on each dollar of taxable property that the city collects, collected. Mm-hmm. And this is today pretty much the equivalent of four-tenths of a cent. Wow. What do you have about Mary Jones. She was really big on children's services, and mm-hmm. she really wanted to make sure that access and use all that stuff was available for children. Uh, she had the lo- uh, library open every day but Christmas, and she also lowered the minimum uh, age requirements for checkout from 12 to 10, <laughs> which increased library usage. All those protests. <laughs> <laughs> they were working the minds. They, they, they wanted to <laughs> they read. They just wanted to relax at the end of the day. She also aided in getting LAPL to participate in the National Cataloging Network, which was trying to build a union catalog for the entire uh, country. And then, yeah, like you mentioned before, she had been big on getting these remote libraries becoming um, part of the LA system. So they were reading rooms, and because of the cramped mm-hmm. conditions, she helped turn them into full-fledged libraries. Yeah. Branches, I mean. The library, it's, the library was so progressive. Every, all, they wanted children to be educated. Mm-hmm. They, they wanted... It was free knowledge. They free knowledge, free knowledge, yeah. They made sure that it was free to everybody. They made sure everyone had 
access to everything mm-hmm. and it was open to everybody open every day yeah. and it, it also because of the library training program was getting people jobs as well especially women it was making sure women were employed yeah. at the turn of the century which was really important and nobody cares about the library and nobody cares nobody about the cares. library <laughs> when she tried to quit <laughs> they know they she didn't try to quit when they tried to kick her out to give Loomis it didn't happen right away yeah um, it was dirty yeah it was a dirty fight and she got a bunch of women uh, she got public sympathy first and they, they totally you know they totally agreed with with her decision to want to stay. They didn't want her to be out as the librarian. She was portrayed in the press as charmingly defiant. <laughs> she got a lot of women organizations like the Friday Morning Club to, to kind of help her out. And um, she, at some point I was reading, it was either her or her library assistant, uh, Celia Gleason, mentioned that everyone on the board who wanted her out should be fired. And when the heat got on the board, um, the mayor fires all the board members who are against Jones, except <laughs> Willoughby Rodman, who supported Jones, and then after a month-long um, intervention from the city council, they, they said it was just cause. So they got rid of Jones, and then mm. Loomis steps in. Yeah, there, there was a lot of bad blood here a lot of bad <laughs> at the blood. end of the reign of women. A lot. Um, I think it was... I forget. There was a, a female writer um, who was on board with Jones, and she was saying as long as men are in administra- administrative positions, women are always going to be fighting. It's always going to be a gender fight between library workers who run the libraries <laughs> and administrative people who are like who look over yeah. everything. Yeah, and it's very no, gender-oriented. When she left in 1905, 1905 mm-hmm. later on in 1913, mm-hmm. she crossed over to the dark side and joined the L.A. County Library, which was recently formed that year. Oh, is that or, right? Uh, recently before that year. I, I read also that at some point, she had to get a job, and her supervisor was her once assistant, uh, Celia Gleason. So that's how she got. Not that that's how she got the job, but once again, they were they, mm-hmm. they joined forces once more. Oh, is that cute? Yeah, that's so cute. nice. <laughs> they should make a movie about it, and it should start us. <laughs> okay, so after this whole debacle and mm-hmm. the reign of women was ended, <laughs> um, the person that the city chose to replace Jones was Charles Fletcher Loomis, Fletcher. who took over from 1905 to 1910. Mm-hmm. And by the time Loomis took over in 1905, the LAPL was one of the most progressive libraries in the U.S. Mm-hmm. with its large collection and various outreach programs and the fact that it was also geared toward having materials for children. Mm-hmm. And all this progressive forward thinking was entirely due to the women who were in charge of the right. library in those early years. It was this exact progressive thinking was also the reason why none of these women's jobs lasted very long. <laughs> if you think about the services that libraries provide, they are very nurturing and they're in, yeah. and men are yeah. incapable of being that nurturing. It's the city's mom. <laughs> it's the city's mom, exactly. It's yeah. the city's mom. Very well put. Yeah, Loomis. All, all I have. I don't. I mean, I have a little bit, but you know, I have a lot of. He's uh no. When I looked him up, um, well, and when I crossed his name in in the uh, article, which was about the progressive women of the library system, it kind of ends with Loomis. Doesn't really go into it. Loomis over. <laughs> I hate you. Um, known uh, a known flamboyant and noted man of letters is how it referred he, to him. He, I couldn't have said it myself. <laughs> I didn't say it. <laughs> So during Loomis' time, the library relocated twice to accommodate the growing collection. Right. And the first time was in 1906, when the collection reached 120,000 volumes. It moved to the Laughlin block, which is right where the Grand Central Market and the Bradbury Building are okay. right now. Yeah. After that, they went to the third floor of the Hamburger Department mm-hmm. Store, which was at 801 South Broadway. It's now the Broadway Trade Center, and they moved there in 1908. Okay. Loomis... Uh, was a was an historian and explorer, and 
yet another colorful character in library history mm. who he literally walked from Ohio to Los Angeles <laughs> on his feet on a dare. That's how he came. That's how he got here. That's pretty flamboyant. It reminds me of what I noted here. His former classmate at Harvard was Theodore Roosevelt. Very similar in will. There's actually a thing. We went, uh, <laughs> me and my girlfriend were at the mm-hmm. library and they had on display this collection because he would like try to get like famous people's autographs or just like connections with famous people. Yeah. And there's a letter on display from Theodore Roosevelt <laughs> saying like, your library is great. And, they, and it, there's a picture of him also like walking around with Theodore Roosevelt. <laughs> Chucky? Yeah. That's what they used to, Theodore used to call him Chucky. Yep. Teddy? Yeah. Teddy used to call him Chucky. Teddy Chucky. <laughs> yeah, so there's a lot. He, he, like, in the special collections, they mm-hmm. have a lot of, really? like, the things, like, the old letters that really famous people and powerful people had sent to him. That oh, that's he, interesting. Because he wanted to try to get, like, notoriety from mm-hmm. the library. <laughs> Another thing he would do, he would put labels that said poison <laughs> onto historical romance novels because he felt them overwrought and dubious. <laughs> And he also kept a diary where he bragged about his performance in bed with his wife and people who weren't his wife. Is that on display in the special yeah. collections? <laughs> That's, it's in the kids' section. It's, mo- it's mostly pictures. <laughs> <laughs> who writes letters like that? Who, who keeps note of that? A lunatic who walks from Ohio <laughs> to Los Angeles. He was also annoyed by all the book theft that was constantly oh, happening. Right. So he created the branding system that oh, the yeah. library used. But he would literally burn the words L.A. Pub Library onto the top leaves of the books. And that's an idea he got from the Mexican monastery libraries. Uh-huh. And his brand and some of these branded books are still on display in the rare and historical collections. Something about fire and paper goes so well together. <laughs> branding a book. Yeah, really, He really like thought that. that one out. His time at the library came to an end in 1910 mm-hmm. after giving himself a nice raise and pension. Of course. Because he, he could. Yeah, he could. And he was just generally spending too much of the library's money, so they got rid of him. <laughs> so glad those nice women stepped aside so this guy could come in and give himself a raise. Yeah. Like everything you think that a man would do. In charge, he did. And he walked from Ohio to do it. <laughs> he walked all the way from, from the great state of Ohio. I wonder if that's how he won the. Uh, that's how he won the position was that dare. Like I dare you. You'll get a seat. You'll, you'll get if you walk from Ohio to Los Angeles. I will give you the library. Okay. After Loomis came Purd B. Wright. Purdy from 1910 to 1911, mm-hmm. and he didn't seem to really do much. So after Purd B. Wright from 1910 to 1911 came the hugely significant figure, Everett Perry, from 1911 to 1933, Mm -hmm. which so far was the longest. That's a really long time. Yeah, yeah. And Perry was a very thrifty man, and Mm -hmm. under his leadership, and also the $210,000 donated to the LAPL by the Andrew Carnegie Foundation. Carnegie. (laughs) (laughs) With that, he grew the library collection from... 166,000 volumes when he started to over 1,400,000 when he left. And he also, in his time, the system expanded to 48 branches. Mm -hmm. The interlibrary loan department was started in 1919 under him by a librarian named Blanche Herzog. Herzog. And the first African-American librarian in California was hired during his time, which is Miriam Matthews, who later went on to pioneer what is now known as Black History Month. Okay. And she has a library named after her in this system also. So this is also the time that the library made its final relocations Mm -hmm. 
first moving to the four upper floors of the Metropolitan Office Building at 5th and Broadway in 1914. And then, here it comes, after buying the land on the side of the old State Normal School, which mm-hmm. was the forerunner of UCLA, yeah. they bought it for $1 <clears throat> to the location that it's now at in 1926, this happened. And they thought that the location wasn't grand enough for the library, mm-hmm. but... Who could argue with that price? Yeah, it really. <laughs> and, they paid in quarters. <laughs> <laughs> they just threw it in. Hey, whatever, I didn't count. <laughs> so in 1918, the library's take of taxable property was mm-hmm. increased to five mils on the dollar. But to get proper funding to help save the library system and get the central library built at this time, there were several bond measures that were passed thanks to Perry. Mm-hmm. And the first one was in 1921 that would bring in $2.5 million dollars to build the central building and help build new branches. Mm -hmm. And the strategy for this one was to pretty much guilt voters into passing it by having campaigns that were like, grow up, Los Angeles. (laughs) Own your library system. Take place with the progressive cities of the world. People probably only respond when they're getting yelled at. (laughs) Yep. They only know guilt. (laughs) The second bond measure was in 1923 for $0.5 million. And then in 1925, for another 0.5 million. In 1925, also the library's tax share was increased to 7 mils on the dollar. And on May 3rd of that year, the cornerstone of the new Central Library building was laid. Mm. Just to sum up where we are at this point, in 1926, there were 643,777 books, an annual circulation of 5,521,889, 45 branches and sub-branches, 72 deposit stations, 231,799 registered borrowers. And from then on, the library continued to grow and expand. New branches were formed. Let's talk about a little bit about the design and how the Central Library was made. Central Library was designed by an architect named Bertram G. Goodhue. Uh, and then a lot of the sculptures were done by Lee Lowry. You know what the G stands for? Good. Grosvenor. <laughs> Does it really? Yeah. Grosvenor. Yeah. I think I wrote it down. I couldn't pronounce it, so I erased it. <laughs> <laughs> he did the um, Nebraska State Capitol, if I'm not mistaken, which looks a little bit similar. He's very. He was very renowned. This was his last big one. He dies two years before it's established. Mm-hmm. He, from what I read was not very interested at first at doing this. As he moved further into the themes of what, it, what, what we would see now, got very into it. And it was his last great work, he called it. He also designed the Caltech oh, did campus. Really? Oh, I didn't know that. That really cool-looking campus. Yeah, it is cool. It's very cool. And I know you know about this. He did the Secret Wolf's Head mm-hmm. Society and the Skull and Bones and Scroll and Key yeah. all at Yale. At Yale, yeah. Yeah. I, I uh, yeah, that article that we were reading about that from, if you got it from the same article, mm-hmm. uh, claims a lot of the stuff is a, a cult symbolism of the, of the central library, yeah, which I can't get on too much on board with. Um, although it is very occulty, it, it, it yeah, but not in the sort of conspiracy way. Yeah, not mm-hmm. in a conspiracy way, in a you know a light. Uh, yeah. <laughs> a, a legitimate occult. Just stealing a bunch of uh, different themes from different different yeah. motifs from different cultures. Yeah, it's very big on yeah, Egyptian and Mediterranean revival. They call it uh, revival architecture. The sculptures inside are really beautiful. Something that I read from La- um, Lowry, which I thought was really interesting, was he said a lot of it. He didn't want to just do something and then install it. Mm-hmm. He wanted to grow organically. So like the apex at the top, the the, the tower. 
yeah. uh, is sculpted. It, they built it, and he sculpted down from that. Right. Yeah, and there was something else. <laughs> oh, the uh, four door or the four statues at the doorways. Mm-hmm. He sculpted from that. He wanted it to grow organically. He uh, wanted to be part of the building, something that could. So, be like, it out. was just the library's one giant block, and, and he, he just carved it out. Yeah, and he carved yeah. it out. The yeah. library was what one giant block. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it just in one giant block. <laughs> they let him at it. Make us a library. <laughs> the the sculptor. Yes. Uh, Lowry, right? Yeah, Lowry. He is also the guy who did all those murals and sculptures at Rockefeller Center. Like, the, oh yeah, uh, the, the the guy holding the, the thing, yeah, and the thing doing the stuff. Mm, that, you know, another one. Yeah, the theme of the library is illumination through a light of learning, mm-hmm. uh, which is you see through a lot of symbolism. The torch at the end of the thing is uh, passing the torch of uh, enlightenment or knowledge. Yeah, and then they have the four um, great seers of literature. It's uh, Shakespeare, and I believe it's uh, Goethe. Homer and Milton, Plato and, and uh, Dante, Dante and Tonto. David. Tonto. 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 Um, yeah, and there's just a lot of beautiful sculptures. Yeah. They have the gold, the gold uh, globe pendant, which I like, which has the zodiac um, symbols around it. It's hanging, I believe, on the second floor in the big room. The yeah. big room, yeah, yeah with the, the murals. And it oh, weighs please. one ton. One ton. And it, uh, it's that globe and the zodiac around it is mm-hmm. part of like a greater model of the whole solar system, which sort of stretches up up on the chain and then yeah. up onto the ceiling. Oh, really? And during World War II, uh, it was lowered to the ground in mm-hmm. case the city was bombed unexpectedly. It really? Would be saved. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Reading that article, they had something really funny. They said if, if the fire department went through. Uh, it wouldn't have passed the code for building the place, which is funny for a different reason. <laughs> <laughs> we'll find out. But they also mentioned that a lot of the murals and sculptures can be easily uh, exited if need be. Like if their place was demolished, yeah. if you know, because uh, California earthquakes is like a, a reality. Like, and <laughs> so you have to like take planning. So a lot of it feels like it can be moved quickly. The murals are actually painted on canvases, which can be taken down. The sculptures. Not all sculptures, but the sculptures on the second wing, those, the, yeah. sphinx, the, sphinxes. the sphinxes made of black Belgian marble. Mm-hmm, they represent strong. the mysteries of knowledge. Beautiful stuff, though, if you get really up close to it. Yeah. It, yeah it was, and you can't. Oh, and you, you can't. This was stuff that I, I saw every day. Not every day, but when I was in high school, I'd see it all the time. And I didn't care at all about it. I'd just walk right past it. But now that I, I'm a little bit more mature, I stop and appreciate it all. Especially the gold pendant. I think it's beautiful. Yeah, it's, it's really nice. Yeah. On the panels on the outside, mm-hmm. carved along the walls, they have like little scenes from different yeah, stories like they have I, a scene from Arabian Nights and Alice in Wonderland mm-hmm. and I think they have a, either Robin Hood or Peter Pan yeah they have it um, in, in the in the courtyard and yeah. I never noticed it until I read the articles and yeah, I went and I didn't know yeah. and then they have like on those steps they have like binary things mm-hmm. and they have like little equations and like uh, letters in all different languages yeah. there's there's a book on it apparently called Spines I believe and it's it's just all the stuff that happens in the courtyard because it's it's a lot of little things going on all through. It's a big courtyard. Yeah. The inscription above one of the entrances reads: "In the world of affairs, we live in our age. In books, we live in all ages." I like that. Yeah. Is it is it uh, attached to anybody? I said that. <laughs> <laughs> I carved it. In. But again, it was f- form over function. Really, it was a beautiful building yeah. that didn't serve the purposes of a library that well. And then they get the chance eventually they're planning to to revamp it and then they suddenly have a tragic chance to go about it before we get into that just to button up the design it was open july 6th Mm -hmm. 1926 formal dedication ceremony july 15th Mm -hmm. the total cost was two million three hundred thousand dollars can we also mention the date that the central library opened that is the date 
April 2nd or April 29th? Did you say it? No, July 6th. Oh, what happened on April 29th where we're debating if it was the Chernobyl disaster? Oh, you'll find out. Oh, that's right. It's something else. Yep. I'm getting all mixed up here. Yeah. By 1950, the facility, which we're talking about, Central Library, uh, was referred to as antiquated. Uh, a lot of people laughed at it. There's an article, I believe it's in 19, the late 60s, where they call Central Library campy. That campy <laughs> 20s look. And they don't really know what to do with it. They, they, it's a space that, I mean, I guess around the time, libraries weren't as useful to people. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a writer, an uh, L.A. writer named John D. Weaver. He wrote The Brownsville Raid. Uh, he did that in 1970, and it led to the exoneration of 167 uh, black soldiers who had been discharged without honor in the 64 years earlier. He was trying to lead a movement where they decentralized Central Library, and they moved and dispersed the books throughout the city, and they kind of just did something different with the space. Mm. But I don't think any... There was a lot of talk of doing something different with the space. And in the 80s, I believe it was... Um, the plan was... The big plan before the big incident happened was they were trying to build three skyscrapers uh, adjacent to each other. One where the U.S. Bank building was going to be, which they were going to call Library Square, and they were just going to use the space really differently. They are only going to dedicate so much space to the library, and then they are going to use the rest for commercial space. And they also wanted one where the Arco building is to be bridged to Bunker Hill, which they plan on keeping active in some way. Yeah, they, they had a lot of... A lot of kooky A lot of plans. kooky notions. A lot of kooky notions. The, the one I saw was that they wanted to have a, a ramp leading directly off the 110 freeway that went straight into the library's parking structure. Wow. Which is not, not too bad of an idea. It's not a too bad idea. The, the history from pretty much like the 30s on... Mm-hmm. The history of the library goes more by like a branch by branch basis. There's no sort of yeah. one history because yeah. each of them has their own history. Uh, on the LAPL websites, mm-hmm. a lot of the specific sections for the libraries have their own little histories yeah. if you want to read those. I have a few milestones here. Mm-hmm. When Harold Lewis Hamill mm-hmm. was in charge from 1947 to 1970, the four bookmobiles oh, of right. the apocalypse. <laughs> The, the four bookmobiles were created mostly to service the valley, which was just sort of becoming yeah. a place to live. But there weren't really libraries and people were so spaced out and they needed yeah. a way to get books to them. In 1964, the circulation <laughs> surpasses 14 million. Okay. In 1973, the system-wide book and material count reaches the 4 million mark. And in 1980, the material count passes the 6 million mark. Massive. Massive. So from the glory day of when that opened, if Kind of, you know, things went up for the library, and then starting from, like, the 40s, 50s-ish, like you said, it was a slow decline Mm -hmm. until something really serious (laughs) happened that jarred everybody back into Let's get back a little bit before that happens, just remind us that they wanted to... (laughs) They wanted this to happen. No, they were they were a lot of plans to. Um, first of all, you have the conservancy and the the it becomes a monument. So there's not really a lot that they want to do with the building. So they're planning to. Uh, it's the 80s, so they want to modernize it. Everything's very modern and square yeah. and skyscrapers and uh, downtown is different. It's not something that it's a place of business. And it has to compete with other centralized places like um, Century City. Beverly Hills, like these are places where business happens. Skyscrapers are kind of spread out throughout LA now. So this isn't the central hub of just, oh, let's walk around downtown and admire all the beautiful things. This is the <laughs> 80s where it's all business and ponytails. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and then 18, uh, 1986 comes around. 
Well, just to set the stage for that even a little more. (laughs) (laughs) When the Central Library was first built, it was envisioned to hold one million books. But just a decade later from opening, they were lending out that many in a month. Mm -hmm. So as the decades were going on, like we said, the building was getting really dangerously crowded and dirty. There was no air conditioning. Uh, There were rats everywhere. There were were bats riding the rats. (laughs) And nobody really knew what to do yeah yeah there it was a big problem again budget cuts even though they were raising money they but they planned i believe the original plan would have cost them two billion dollars to revamp it and they were sort of building um i believe robert mcguire and robert anderson were behind putting a lot of funds together but Um, luckily they didn't have to worry about any of that (laughs) because uh on april 29th 1986. Mm-hmm. Maybe the same day as the Chernobyl disaster. We don't know. Definitely not the same day as the Chernobyl disaster. <laughs> At 10.52 a.m., that's when the fire alarms started. But people, when the fire alarms first started, nobody really cared because people pulling fire alarms mm-hmm. in the library is like a national pastime. <laughs> so it, it happened like every day. So people were like, oh, again. Yeah. But so, yeah, yeah, people were, because it hadn't spread that quickly people were able to evacuate kind of yeah. shuffling out yeah. like who cares mm-hmm. but by twelve thirty, the fire had spread and the apartment was faced with three major problems the fire attack ventilation and salvage that protects the um the published works everything all the materials that uh, were in danger uh, the ventilation division of the fire department had to use axes and sledgehammers to break all these beautiful walls of the library down yeah. and get to everything since the library was so cramped and horrible mm-hmm. and bat filled and rat filled <laughs> and all the old flammable books were all crammed they were just crammed like any space yeah. like behind they the, use behind. utility closets to keep books like, yeah like places I'm, where you should have been yeah, keeping I'm sure, fire extinguishers yeah. but you put books there all the emergency exits were just full <laughs> of books so it it like it was a fire's dream <laughs> it's everything Absolutely. a fire could ask for all those old books with the paper that burned mm-hmm. so quickly yeah it ended up taking 350 firefighters to eventually stop the blaze which wasn't defeated completely until 6 30 p.m that same day boy the the temperatures in some of these rooms were well over 2000 degrees fahrenheit right. 400,000 books were burned oh. and 700,000 additional books were water damaged there was an arson fire mm-hmm. they they had a suspect apprehended but he was never proven to be guilty so nobody has ever been convicted of doing this to make things even worse five months later after that happening another mm-hmm. arson fire <laughs> broke out uh that was not solved also but it was nowhere near as serious yeah the silver lining on this was that it sort of united everybody mm-hmm. to really be like oh we need a library <laughs> and immediately after the fire there were 1700 volunteers that worked mm-hmm. around the clock for days packing up the water damaged books and sending them to be frozen, which is how you prevent water damage. In some cases. In, in some, some cases. cases. Yeah. In all cases. So the books were frozen for about three years <laughs> just because there was nowhere to put them. Again, there's no, no space. Yeah. The main building was so severely damaged and they kind of took up headquarters, it seems, a few blocks away, but there wasn't enough room for the whole collection. Mm-hmm. This is when a lot of civic leaders and just the general public started raising millions of dollars to help restore the building and correct the damages. Two of those men, like I mentioned before, Robert McGuire and Robert Anderson, they were two, like you said, business leaders, and they uh, pretty much led the redevelopment plan um, along with a guy named Ladrick Cook, who worked for Arco, who was across the street when the library was burning down. 
So um, that's suspicious. <laughs> and another person really big on um, helping this out was uh, the mayor, Tom Bradley at the time. He was also very mm-hmm. big at getting uh, rallying a lot of uh, private sector people together yeah. to put money towards that. One of the things that they did was they sold the air rights above Central yeah. Library, which is how the U.S. Bank Tower across mm-hmm. the street. That's how they. they I always it. thought that was the library. <laughs> that now is the tall, not only the tallest city, the tallest skyscraper in our skyline. Mm-hmm. It's also the tallest building west of the Mississippi. Wow. Yeah. I did not know that. It was once the Arco building. Mont Robert McGuire uh, sold the air rights for uh, $51 million, and that pretty much funded uh, the renovations that Norman, F- I believe, Pfeiffer took over, and he turns this three, three-story three library into an eight-story library. He goes underground. Yeah. That addition is as deep as the original library is broad. Really? Yeah. That's I didn't know that. That solves the space problem, and they did. I thought they did it really great. Yeah, they yeah. handled that. Yeah, but if you stand on the very top floor, which is level four, and you look mm-hmm. all the way to lower level four, it's incredibly <laughs> yeah. deep and it's terrifying. It's the, the new building solved the space problem. Mm-hmm. I got a lot of LA um, public officials involved with it. It brought a lot of awareness to the library. Mm-hmm. They also built at the west entrance after this happened. Mm-hmm. They put up a bronze map that pinpoints all the sites of histories, book burnings, and all the great libraries and right? fires throughout history. History. I did yeah. not see. I did not know that. Yep. Something else about Ladrick Cook that I thought was really interesting. They they named the rotunda about um, after him. He was very big on. He was an Arco chairman. Like I said, worked across the street. Kind of a strange guy. He helped raise ten million dollars to aid in the redevelopment. They named the rotunda after him. And when they asked him why he did it, he's like, "Oh, because we're neighbors." You know, he was oh, never really that. See, isn't that sweet? Yeah. He wasn't that. That's weird from the Arco chairman. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. I thought the same thing. Robert Anderson was very big in putting. Uh, art up in the Arco building mm-hmm. to kind of inspire creativity and in all the employees and he, Mr. Cook, sold all of it <laughs> and uh, he sells all the art pieces. That sounds more like the Arco yeah, chairman. That's either. right. <laughs> and to boost gasoline sales, started building a bunch of hamburger shops and convenience stores at company stations, which is why if you go to an Arco gas station, they also sell hamburgers. Ah. Mm. And everyone hated him for that, basically. <laughs> and he also, had a, I read an article where he just bursts out into dancing a lot, like impromptu dancing. He was knighted by Queen Elizabeth Port II. Wait a minute. Was he American? Yeah, he was uh, Southern. An American can be knighted? That's what I read. Somewhere he was knighted by Queen Elizabeth Part II. Part two. Part two. <laughs> Part two. Sequel. He seemed like just a really kind of, um, not silly, but just mm-hmm. kind of um, not the kind of guy who, like Tom Bradley was, like mm-hmm. very serious all the time. Yeah. And, uh, he especially was the fun for, uncle of the, the library. The fun uncle who um, lived across the street. Basically, if uh, if you ever get an old water damage book from the library, you're holding a piece of history. Mm, or it might have been dropped in a toilet. <laughs> <laughs> so where does the library, what, where does the library go? Um, what happens to Central Library once it's closed down for renovations and everything because of the fires? Where does that collection go? Does it stay there or does it spread out? Damn. Well, a lot. I think a lot of it went to the other branches. Just, mm-hmm. you know, wh- wh- whoever had room, I guess, could take some. But right. a lot of it was in frozen storage for a long time. Right. And then some of it they moved, I guess, down the street a little bit, but they really couldn't fit that much. I mean, a lot of it was th- a there's down. never enough room. There's never <laughs> enough room <laughs> for the library. Well, after that, I mean, same, the exact same day, six days later, Let's mention that in 1993, Central Library opens up again um, in October. It takes seven years after renovations. Now, beautiful building is open again. Six years to the exact day. Let's go from here. Six years to the exact day of the Central Library Friday. The verdict of the Rodney King beating is decided in Simi Valley, and South LA explodes with violence. So that happens. The riots, um, I thought, was going to be much bigger, but because Central Library was closed at the time, 1992 was a year from opening, it doesn't really get touched. Libraries, a lot of libraries don't get touched. Two of them have to shut down for a while. One of them is the 
Juniper Cerro, which was on Figueroa and I believe 42nd Street. Yeah. But it got attacked because it was in a shopping plaza. <laughs> so they just took down everything from there. And the other one was John Muir. So both of them were housed different places and they both benefited because Juniper Cerro, uh, when they moved to a, a bigger place while well, renovations, decided they liked that new building a lot more and they stayed there. The only thing that like gets libraries to be to get the upgrades that they need is a fire or a riot or <laughs> an, an earthquake. earthquake. Exactly. It's, yeah, it's, nat it's, it's disasters. Yeah. Uh, disasters fighting budgets is the theme. <laughs> um, there was an earthquake in 1987. It forced uh, 11 branches to close and they had to be vacated. The first one, I think, was the Robert Louis Stevenson branch, which had to close because of the Whittier Narrows earthquake. Uh, but it opened like a re uh, couple years later after renovations. Again, the renovations upgraded a lot of problems that they had there. Yeah, and um, after the riots, it lot brought a lot of communities. Libraries brought a lot of communities together. That's a theme of a lot of this is libraries bringing communities together. Yeah. After, um, let's say, the 90s, I believe I read a lot of articles about there. Now there are community centers and civic centers and people meet to play chess and argue and make you mad as a <laughs> clerk. Please talk about celebrities. So let's now. talk celebrities. Please. This is what I'm here for. A lot of notable people, like we were talking about Teddy Roosevelt mm -hmm. and several other people, but more recently, uh, and not so recently, Leonardo DiCaprio donated mm -hmm. $35,000 in 1998 to make the Leonardo DiCaprio <laughs> Computer Center at the Los Files Library. It's a very nice library and it has a very nice computer center, to be honest. Yeah. Thank you, Leonardo very DiCaprio. Very hard parking there, though. <laughs> Leonardo <laughs> could have used a couple extra spaces. Aldous Huxley, mm -hmm. writer of Brave New it. World. Yep, he loved the LA library system. Uh, a lot of professional LA athletes have mm -hmm. supported the LAPL. I know there's an old picture of Shaquille O'Neal holding a book That's saying right. "Read." And did you read because of <laughs> Did yeah. you read after? That's you? what drove me <laughs> to read. Saying <laughs> Shaquille O'Neal read. Mm -hmm. And biggest of all for the library, for the LAPL library, was Ray Bradbury. Mm -hmm. Brad baby. Brad baby. <laughs> he, he couldn't afford college, so he went to the library instead. Mm -hmm. And he said that he graduated at age 28 from the library. <laughs> and he wrote uh, his early stories and Fahrenheit 451 mm -hmm. on the public typewriters they used to have at the Central Library. And you had to drop... Uh, money into him and he had to type it out. I read that. He had to type really? it really quickly and then, like, he always worried about the buzzing that came out. That's I how remember. he got it done. <laughs> Charles Bukowski also wrote a poem uh, about the library burning uh, because he was a big fan of it. It was called The Burning of a Dream and it's a sort of ode to hit the library and revealing window into his youth. I haven't read it because it's his longest one. I believe it's eight pages. He's, no, it's going to read that. He, he must have really loved the library though. <laughs> or he loved burning the library. Back to Ray Bradbury. After his death in 2012, mm -hmm. Fifth and Flower Streets, which is right by the Central Library, yes. was renamed the Ray Bradbury Square. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Is it still Ray Bradbury Square? Yeah, it's permanently the Ray Bradbury Square. That's great. Yeah. And now, sort of related to celebrities, they filmed Ghostbusters in the basement of the Central Library. And here we are, and we're going to have the whole scene out. I'll be the ghost, and you be the rest of the ghost. <laughs> Anyone could film the library. There's rates pro posted on the website. Mm -hmm. They're kind of steep, which is kind of weird. But um, <laughs> I mean, you you could film there if you wanted to spend the money, several hundred dollars. Now, a, a, a more a really recent, really actually really serious uh, event in yeah. library history. In 2008, 2009, the library funding got severely cut, and hours got cut. The hours of all the libraries got to cut down from seven days a week to mm -hmm. five for the first time in 140 <laughs> years of history. And the staff was cut by 28%, and a lot of people were laid off. Mm -hmm. But Measure L, 
which was voted on and passed by more than a 63% vote, which still seems kind of low. Yeah. yeah. It set up a four-year plan to rejuvenate the library system by bringing back the hours and uh, the, the opening up on Sundays again. They buy new materials, have more programs for the public. It increased the library's share of the existing city funds without mm-hmm. raising taxes, and it increased the library's responsibility for its own costs. Uh, so now all the fines that they take in, the library keeps rather than that going that's into just a general fund. Yeah, that's very good. And I have the current 2013 fiscal year Let's facts. Let's hear it. Let's Here hear it. Here we go. Oh, boy. One central library, eight regionals, 64 branches for a total of 73 libraries. Adult literacy centers in central and 20 branch libraries. Mm-hmm. Six million four hundred thousand books, magazines, DVDs, CDs, etc. One hundred online databases, ninety thousand four hundred e-books, e-audiobooks, movies, and songs available online for free. Three million historic images with ninety thousand available online to see. Two thousand six hundred public computers. Okay. In two thousand thirteen, there were fourteen million one hundred thousand visits in the library while there were 22,400,000 web visits, Mm. 15 million items were checked out that year, 18,700 programs were put on, uh, and next year, 2014's budget is $123 million, and that is less than 2% of the city's budget, and there are 828 employees that work there. And you're one of those. I am... Technically, I'm like (laughs) 828.1. It seems like they're on the up and up after measure L, which is really Yeah, they're they're bouncing back. They're getting bigger. Mm -hmm. And now that they're sort of their own entity where they sort of take in their own money and they can pay for themselves, it can only get better. There's a lot of programs right now because of the recession where they're trying to help people get jobs. Yeah, which is yeah. Really there's great. there's a lot. There's people who come in on certain days at certain libraries, and you can talk to them. They can help you make a resume and yeah. try to find you know listings for you. A lot of articles written about them, like I mentioned, them being community centers now, and they're being a little bit more. And I think a lot of it has to do with the recession. A lot of people are out of work, and they're kind of looking for somewhere free to get a lot of stuff done. Yeah. Libraries are now that, especially because. There seems to be a lot, not only say a lot more, but I know of in my area, Echo Park, we have Edendale, which opened up not so long ago. We have Silver Lake. We have the Echo Park branch, Central Library is close. But I seem surrounded and over here in the valley as well. And like There's every two miles yeah. is another library. And they mm-hmm. all service their own little community. And I think it's really good to have community centers like that. I want to talk about the something that's pretty cool, the rare and special collections, which mm-hmm. is in the Central Library. Because the collection stretches back to the beginning of the library, yeah. and anyone can come in and have access to look at what's going on. Mm-hmm. Some of the things they have, they have a huge cookbook selection <laughs> that they're apparently very proud of, <laughs> uh, which has a copy of the first cookbook ever to be published in Mexico. <laughs> really? Um, they have the largest collection of books on bullfighting in the world. Okay. A lot of movie makers go to it all the time to get historic facts on stuff like how much food used to cost. Mm-hmm. Uh, because they have a really extensive collection of old restaurant menus. They have a copy of the first printed book to contain the word California. Wow. They have a ton of old playbills. 
and they have the oldest book that they have is called Gregori Moralia in Jobum, mm-hmm. and it's from 1480. So the current state of the library, like we talked about before, the, they're really making use of computers rather mm-hmm. than being killed by computers because yeah. they have free music downloads, free current magazines you can download onto iPad and books and all that, free movies. You can watch free movies, mm-hmm. a lot of good free movies. They tape all their events, they put them online with podcasts, they have a really good blog. Why don't, you, why don't you tell me what what do you what do I need to get a library card? Right off. The All bat. you need mm-hmm. to get a library card mm-hmm. is to come in. You need an, a California ID with your current address, and you fill out a form. And if you don't have something with your current address, you could have any sort of piece of mail or bill. Just come in, and you can get a library card for free it's great i yeah. like and you get all of this you get all of all, it. Of, all of this just the last few things i have is that it's the eighth largest public library system in the country mm-hmm. and in 2001 it was voted by mayor richard reardon's library mm. commission <laughs> for, the, for the name to be changed from the rufus von klein schmidt library to the richard j reardon central library which, was he a big fan of books richard reardon he was not actually. He, hated them. <laughs> he was very casual about that route being uh, awarded to him. He was yeah. sort of like, "Well, I like books." It's kind of weird. It was a lot of. I, I came across a lot of articles that were, that were sort of like Richard Reardon. Why? <laughs> and they couldn't Who? believe it. I remember that. I, I, I sound so old timey. I remember them changing the name. I, I didn't know the name was ridiculous before. Uh, Mr. Kleinschmidt. Uh, yeah. Kleinschmidt was a USC uh, chancellor. I remember. Yeah. He was a city library commissioner. Hearing the, the history of it all the way through, uh, it definitely has um, it's had its root in something very practical, and it's contained. Uh, it's it still contains that practicality. Okay. Yeah, it's really it's hearing it all. It's really cool. Yeah. It's a really cool thing that you can get a lot of cool free things from it, that it, you would normally pay a lot of money for. Is it open right now? Let's go. <laughs> I can't stress enough to people how. I don't want to say important, but how um, rewarding it is to get involved with libraries. Not like involved, like doing volunteer. Although volunteer work is good on its own. They have programs where you can read the children. You can be a docent for the Central Library. But just being able to just uh, free ac- or yeah, free access and, and uh, everything's available to you. Yeah. If something's hard to find, they have interlibrary loan. Mm-hmm. They make everything very um, accessible for people, and I think that's really important. Even as Google takes over everything, and <laughs> it's so easy to find answers. The library still has a, a librarian who will sit with you and, yeah. and show you where to find something. I think that's very important. Yeah. So it's agreed that the libraries are good. Can we high five on it? Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, yeah. That's uh, that's our first episode. I hope everyone enjoyed. Uh, I hope. Yeah. I hope it wasn't too boring or rambling. So thank you for listening. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Greg. Mm. And this has been La Meekly catchphrase pending. <laughs>